I just love uh, having the, the the praise and prayer time where where I get, you know I get to see all the ways that the church has been loving each other through the week that I didn't know anything about. It's just like it's so cool to watch all of that occur. So uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter twenty three this morning. If you want to flip over there, we're picking things up um, where Paul has just completed his third missionary journey. He uh, has gone back to Jerusalem knowing that things probably weren't going to go very well for him because everybody told him that it wasn't going to go very well for him. And sure enough, that was correct. Uh, It's not surprising that the Jews at this point did not like Paul. They saw him as someone who was trying to take everything that they held dear away from them. And so he was kind of enemy number one right now. And so upon arriving in in Jerusalem, Paul was falsely accused. He was pulled out of uh, the the temple and beaten. Uh, He was then arrested by the Romans. He was almost flogged, which is like you never want to be almost flogged. You definitely don't ever want to be flogged. Even almost is too much. And then uh, he now remains in custody with uh, Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander, trying to figure out what in the world to do with this guy. And so that's kind of where we pick things up. So so humanly speaking, things are not looking good for Paul right now. This has got to be a time where he's just sitting, you know, wondering, Lord, what's going on? And, uh, and in, at the end of where Terry left off last week, I love verse 11 of chapter 23, where it says, The following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. At the right moment, God graciously visits Paul in his hour of need and reminds him that even though everything looks like it's falling apart right now, everything's going according to plan. And he he reminds Paul of that, which is so nice, because we need to hear that as Christians very often, don't we? So in our passage today, we're going to see the lengths that people will go to to try to stop the Christian message. But we will also see the lengths that God will go to, to to rescue us and to make sure that the message of who his son is and what he's done for mankind gets proclaimed. So the plot line of this uh, chapter would actually make a great story for a movie. I don't know if there's any like would-be directors out there, but this is good stuff. You've got riots, close calls, conspiracy, espionage, assassination attempts. Uh, dramatic rescues. And then in, in chapter 24, where, where we'll be next week, we have like this great courtroom drama that plays out. I, I love, I don't know what it is about like the old Perry Mason kind of shows and those, you know, you can't handle the truth kind of things that I just, those are great. And this is uh chapter 24 is, is kind of that. So, and I get to go through it, which I'm pretty happy about. I like that passage. So anyway, we pick things up in verse 12, which says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the commander to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Well, that's a pretty great plan right there. And, and I, you know, it's, it's kind of alarming that they go to the religious leaders and they're like, hey, we got this great plan where you, you guys lie and deceive the Romans. And then, at, you know, when they're not expecting it, we'll jump out and we'll murder Paul. And they, they give it two enthusiastic thumbs up. Like, that sounds like a great plan. God's got to be all behind that, right? And they do it. And, and these, these 40 people are so convinced that they're doing God's will, that they make an oath not to eat or drink anything until it's accomplished. <laughs> and I'm going, 
I mean, you got to, you know, think something through before you say, I'm not going to eat or drink anything. And, and these guys were that sure. And it doesn't go on to say that, but I assume they all die of starvation <laughs> because God had other plans in mind for Paul. I'm guessing they gave up after a few days, most likely. All right, so verse 16, we read this. It says, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. So this is like the best nephew ever. If you're giving out shirts, he should get that one. Because he finds out that his uncle's in danger, and he goes, You know what, i got to go tell him. And so he, I would think, at some danger to himself, if you stroll into a Roman you know, uh, whatever it was, jail cell type of situation to go and tell your uncle what's up. That's kind of scary, right? Can you imagine being Paul, though? Um, you're already sitting in jail wondering what's going to happen. And then you find out that you have over 40 people who are fully committed to your imminent demise. I, I just can't. I try to think that through. And I'm like, I'm so uh, just not hardy when it comes to things like this that i mean if somebody responds to me in all caps in an email i'm like whoa whoa well you know what's why why the threatening tone that bothers me you know um and i want everybody to like me all the time it's just that kind of thing so the idea of my life being in this kind of danger i can't really even relate to i even tried to think through my life of like was there a time and the only thing i could come up with and this is just i could picture paul hearing my story and going really this is your, this is what you, you know, but I remember I'd moved from Southern Idaho to Coeur d'Alene. I was at a middle school. I was, I think, seventh grade. And I, you want to fit in when you go to a new school. And there was a guy there named Cam Muzzy. It's just a good name, Cam Muzzy. And he was the strongest, coolest guy in the school. And I thought, and he was in eighth grade too. So, you know, already way cooler than everybody else. And I thought if I can just get in with him, everybody will like me. And so the, the, these guys come and tell me, Hey, Go up and ask Cam how many sister, how many push-ups his sister can do. And I'm thinking, this is my chance. This is, I'll, this is my in. So I go up to him and I ask the question and he flexes all of his muscles and he stares at me and he says, my sister doesn't have any arms. And my heart goes from, you know, here down to here. And I'm trying to like point to the guys that told me and they're all gone, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm just standing here thinking, this is really bad. And he looks at me and he says, today after school, you're dead. And that was a long day because <laughs> I believed him. I thought I'm going to die today. And this is, and I'm trying to like, I don't I remember. I didn't learn anything that day. I just sat there and thought, this is it Lord. And I wasn't even a Christian then. Uh, it turns out it was all a hilarious joke, which I still don't think is funny at all. He didn't even have a sister. This is just something they did to the new guys that came to school to just have fun and terrify them. So that was my, that's my little story of like, boy, my life was, and, and again, I'm just picturing Paul going, yeah, that sounds really hard, Brent. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I can't remotely relate to what Paul's going through right now. But in verse 17, we read this. His nephew tells him about this plan. So Paul calls one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. And, and I'm just fascinated by the fact that here's a prisoner who's telling the centurions what to do and they're doing it. <laughs> and it may be because they, they, you know, they almost beat a Roman citizen and they're worried right now. Like, so they're on their best behavior. But I like to think that this is more about the fact that Paul is filled with the Holy spirit and there's authority in, in this apostle telling these guys to go do this thing. So verse 18, you read, so he took him, the nephew, and he brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. 
So the commander took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. So the young man spills the beans of the whole plot. The commander now knows about it. We aren't told, by the way, how old Paul's nephew is, um, but but you get the the idea that he's young because it says, I don't know how old you are, you know, when when you stop, you know, holding somebody by the hand and pulling him aside. But the fact that he grabbed this kid by the hand and pulls him aside sounds like he's young. He's probably not 18. That'd be weird. Um, but it doesn't tell us. So so you just get the impression that he's young. At any rate, Claudius believed the young man and he took immediate action. In verse 23, it says, Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, which would have been 9 p.m. So kind of the, the time when everybody's settling down and, you know, get them out of town when, when everybody's kind of not paying attention. Verse 24 says, Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. It's very interesting, again, that prior to this, the commander didn't give a lick about Paul. Uh, he, he, he was willing to beat him with an inch of his life just to get some information. Didn't care about him at all. And now he's, he's willing to take 470 of his men to make sure that this guy gets out of town safely. And again, you just see the hand of God in this. This doesn't make any sense for this guy to do this, but he does. And he also sends a letter along with Paul to prepare Governor Felix for the handoff. Um, now, listen to Claudius's account of this, the way he writes this letter, to see if you notice anything kind of fishy about, about it. Verse 25, and he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found out he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So you got to love this guy's kind of schmoozy letter. He certainly paints himself in the best light possible, doesn't he? Uh, you know, Paul, he was about to be, this, this, this Roman citizen was about to be killed by the Jews. And I came in and saved the day, uh, you know, learning, you know, knowing that he was a Roman citizen. It's like, no. That's not exactly everything that happened, Claudius. First off, you accused him of being like an Egyptian assassin, you know, and then you, you grab the guy, you arrest him, even though he's a Roman citizen, without finding out. That's against the law. Then you almost flog the guy, but, like, you don't tell it, you know, he doesn't say any of that stuff. Um, at least he does write that Paul is innocent and not deserving of death or imprisonment. But but I would just remind you guys, if you have not learned this yet as as people, never listen to only one side of a story because you're only getting half of the story, and it's the half that makes the person telling it look really good, right? I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in situations. I remember even with my kids, if you're a parent and you've got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They will tell you this story, you know, about the other person, what happened. You're like, this kid is evil. I can't believe that, you know, they would do this kind of thing. And then you go and talk to this, the other child, and, they're, and you're like, oh, that kid's a liar, and not trustworthy. You know, you figure it out pretty quickly. Somewhere in the middle of these two stories lies something like the truth. 
But you never just take half a story. And I know that in the church sometimes we do this because a friend, somebody we love and care about, will give us their side of the story, and we automatically assume it's accurate. Um, get both halves. Somewhere you'll find the truth. Just a good principle. I'm always amazed at how my opinion change, it changes after, uh, as Paul Harvey said, I hear the rest of the story. So verse 31 says, The soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Sicilia, which is a, a respected place, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So, so we leave off there in the passage today. Uh, Paul is safely delivered to Governor Felix, which now sets the stage for the hearing that we will look at uh, next week in chapter 24. But it's important to kind of point out that at this point, Paul lands here and he's going to be there for two years under house arrest before he moves on to Rome. Two long years now await Paul. So we're going to look now at, at how we can apply some of these things we've looked at today. And so the first thing that I see in this passage, um, and this sounds kind of bad, but I'll explain it, so bear with me, is this. Don't expect rational behavior from unbelievers, okay? And, and the reason I say this is because people who are not Christians, I don't know if you've noticed it, but they see, see things very differently than the way we see, see things. And, and there's times when you just, it's like, huh? But here we see more than 40 individuals collectively thought it was a really great idea to make an oath not to eat or drink anything until they murdered the Apostle Paul. And I look at that and I'm like, can you be more stupid than that? But they didn't see it at all. They thought what they were doing was completely rational. And I'm looking at it going, you guys are out of your minds. It's the Apostle Paul. They didn't get it. It made perfect sense to them and it made perfect sense to the religious leaders to do this thing. And, and I see people today doing things and defending things that look like complete lunacy to me, but they think it's absolutely logical and correct. And I don't mean to make light of this. I might even get in trouble for saying this, but I have an example that is so good that I have to say it. So I'm sorry ahead of time if it's offensive in any way. I'm not trying to be. But I, this is one of the things I've seen in the news. It's like I read these things sometimes and I think it's a Babylon Bee article. This is satire. And then I find out, no, this is actually a real headline. And this is one where um, there's like women's rights advocates, legit women's rights advocates that are all for championing women. And these same people will allow and champion a biological male who identifies as a woman to join into the sports arena that these women are a part of, whether it's track or rugby or this, UFC fighting. This has really happened to where a, a, a biological male goes into the ring with a female and beats the tar out of her, and the women's rights advocates say, yay, championing women's rights. And I look at this and I think, I mean, this is heartbreaking to me to think, what are, what are we doing as a society when we can, when we, we don't see that? I mean, I feel like, do you remember the Hans Christian Andersen, the Emperor's New Clothes story? If you, if you go read it, but I feel like that kid going, but he doesn't have any clothes on. Does anybody see this? Am I the only one that, that sees this? And, and, and you feel like you've lost your mind sometimes. But, but it's, it's just a reminder that apart from the grace of God, apart from Him opening our eyes, this is what we would do. This is how we would think. So the fact that we don't 
thank the Lord and have compassion on people that don't. I think Paul's a perfect example of this. Paul was charging ahead with all he had to kill every Christian he could, to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. And then, and he thought that was logical and correct and godly and right. And then God just went and flipped him around and said, no, I'm going to open your eyes to who you're persecuting and what you're doing, and you're going to change course. And he did. That is the grace of God. And we, and we need to remember that. Because before I was a Christian, I didn't think a lot of things were wrong that I think are horribly wrong now. And I could go down a long list of things that I just was like, that's okay, that's okay, there's nothing wrong with that, that now I'm appalled by. That wasn't Brent getting smarter. That wasn't me figuring things out. That was the Holy Spirit convicting me and his holy word convicting me to see it the, to see it this way. We're living in a time where people are calling evil good and calling good evil. And only Christ can reorient that. Only the gospel can reorient that. Politics won't fix that. Education won't fix that. Money won't fix that. Christ alone can fix that. So pray for people. When you see this kind of thing, ask that God would open their hearts and minds to the truth of, of, of the reality of, of who God is and what he's done. Uh, but don't be surprised when you see irrational or illogical behavior in our broken world. And just remember that God rescued us from that as well. I, I can't help but think of the old, the old hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. So the next thing we see in this is that a unified, powerful mob is powerless against our God. God wanted Paul to arrive safely in Rome. So guess what was going to happen? Paul was going to arrive safely in Rome, period. It didn't matter how good their plan was or how many people they had or, or you know, how committed they were, how organized they were. God is never outmatched. God is never outmatched. And I see a lot of Christians today that don't appear to believe that. And it, and it, it kind of breaks my heart. Do you remember the, the Old Testament account of Elisha from 2 Kings chapter 6? Elisha was just, just the man. I mean, the guy's just amazing as far as, you know, a prophet of God. This guy was incredible. And so what the story basically tells that the king of Aram, who hated Israel, uh, he wanted to find a way to defeat Israel. And so he kept coming up with these plans of how he would ambush him, like, on a Tuesday in this valley. And then they would get there on Tuesday, and nobody was there. And he's like, what's going on here? And, okay, we're going to ambush him on a Friday, you know, and this get there, and nothing's going on. And he's getting frustrated by it because these are really good plans they're coming up with, and they should be working, but they're not. And then he finds out, basically, that there's an insider. He's got a mole, he thinks. Somebody's telling, somebody's tipping off Israel to this before it happens, and so he's going to find this out. So we read this in verse 11. The king of Aram became very upset over this. He called his officers together and demanded, which of you is the traitor? Who has been informing the king of my plans? The king of Israel. And verse 12 says, it's not us, my lord, the king, one of the officers replied. Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. That's just awesome. So Elisha's just sitting here like listening in, like on the conversations. God just like it's like his room is bugged and he doesn't know it. Um, that's a sermon, by the way, right there. You're, you know that your room is bugged by God. Think about that for a minute. Right. Whew, like, yeah. 
for another day. Well, that doesn't go over well with the king of Aram. And so in verse 13, he says, go and find out where Elisha is so I can send troops to seize him. Now, you have to see the irony in this. This guy can hear everything I think and say and do. Well, I got a plan. We're going to sneak up on this guy and we're going to take him out. It's like this is you know, this goes back to point number one. Don't expect rational behavior. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, do you not think Elisha is going to figure this one out, too? But he does not. So he decides to do a sneak attack by sending a massive army with chariots and horses to around the city where he lives. And so that morning, uh, <laughs> Elisha's servant, I just picture this guy like waking up and walking out, you know, oh, and he sees the army. King Aram's army is there, and they mean business, surrounded the city. And so he, you know, I'm just picturing waking up Elisha, you know, we're in a tight spot. Uh, what are we going to do? And Elisha says this. Don't be afraid, for there are more on our side than on theirs. And I'm just picturing the servant going, all right, one, two, you know. It's like, I don't know how you're calculating this, but I'm not seeing it. That doesn't make any sense. They've got an army out there. You see, Elisha understood a reality that we need to understand and that his servant was about to discover. Verse 17 says, then Elijah prayed, Elisha, sorry, I keep saying, I'll mix them up. Don't worry. You know who I'm talking about. Then Elisha prayed, oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes. When he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. All around this whole place was the army of God ready to do battle. Elisha was as snug as a bug in a rug, as my mom used to say. And he wasn't worried because he knew the reality of who God was and what he was capable of. And even though an army came against him, he, 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 didn't, he didn't fear. You know, it reminds me of Psalm 22. I'm sorry, Psalm 2, not 22, Psalm 2, which is just a no-nonsense psalm. It's funny, you read the first one, you're like, this is really pleasant. And then you read the next one, it's like, oh. <laughs> psalm 2 is fantastic, though, in my opinion. It asks the question, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's this idea that the rulers gather together and say, let's take God and his people out. And how does God respond to that? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on my holy hill. And he's talking about Jesus Christ, the righteous one who is the only true king. He's on his throne. He's not leaving that throne. And, and, and he is ruling and reigning even now, even when it doesn't make sense and we don't see it. And I pray that God would show each of us what Elisha knew and what his servant learned that day. It's what Psalm 34, 7 says. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Too many Christians today are afraid of what might happen. I, I just see it all the time, and i got to be honest and say, I fall into the same fear. What if I catch this? What if I lose that? What if the church stops giving? What if people keep leaving? You know, we've had people leave right now. It's heartbreaking. I hate to see people leave. Um, Sometimes it's our fault. 
Sometimes it's just what we're preaching. Sometimes it's our theology. Sometimes it's our, you know, it's politics. It's so many things right now, but it's, it's kind of a weird time. And, and we can fear, but I, I love, uh, Jeremiah 2011 says, but the Lord stands beside me like a great warrior. I think the new American standard says a dread champion. I mean, somebody you just look at and think, oh, I'm not, I'm not going up against that guy. Before him, my persecutors will stumble. They cannot defeat me. They will fail and be thoroughly humiliated. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. A person who is in Christ doesn't have an enemy that they really have to worry about. Do we have an enemy that wants to hurt us? Yes. But, but the sovereignty of God is bigger than these things. And if that's not a pillow for you to lay your head upon, I don't know what is. There is no devised plan that can defeat our God or destroy our future if we're in Christ. Do you believe that, Christian? I hope you do. People will go to great lengths to stop the Christian message, but God will go to greater lengths to rescue us and to make sure his message gets proclaimed. And that brings us to the last point, and that is that God can use anything and anyone to accomplish his will and plan. Again, God wants Paul to end up in Rome, and he just kind of effortlessly moves people and circumstances around on a chessboard, like just in making things happen the way he wants them to happen. And I love that. In this passage, we see God using a young child. Paul's nephew, to help accomplish his plan. Can you imagine how that young man felt when he watched Paul get safely out of town and continue on with the gospel message? I, I, I did, you know, God used me to help with that. Young people. It's so cool to see young people here. You know, I know we don't have children's services and things like that right now, but you are so welcome here and we're so glad to see you. Do you know that God will use you? That God can use you and will use you? Do you know that young people can often talk to people that we can't? I noticed that growing up, like my mom and dad, you know, they don't know the Lord and, and we would try to talk to them about the Lord and they would shut us down pretty quickly. But you know who could talk to them? The kids. They would ask them all kinds of just awesome theological questions like, you know, hey, Papa and Grandma, how come you guys don't ever come to church? You know, it's like, yeah, I wasn't setting them up. They were just asking. And, and, and you know, God can use everyone in the church, young and old. In our passage today, we see God using corrupt leaders to accomplish his purpose. Corrupt leaders to accomplish his purpose. Let that sink in for a minute. That means governors you may not like. That means politicians you may not like. That means presidents you may not like or ones you may not like, depending on where you're at. God is not limited by that. Is it good to have godly leaders? Absolutely. Is it necessary for God to accomplish his plan? It doesn't seem to be. It sure makes it easier for us. I mean, there's no question about it. I'm all for it. But God plows right through, you know, even those who are against him, even his enemies he used. The fact that, and this blows my mind. I try to think about this because I don't understand the responsibility of man and, and the sovereignty of God are like parallel lines that just run through the universe right next to each other and somehow work. Jesus Christ was murdered by God's enemies. And yet they fulfilled God's plan perfectly in doing so. I don't know, but God does, and he uses that. Men are still responsible for their evil. God's not. And yet they perfectly accomplished his plan. That's who we're dealing with here. That's good news, Christian. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I grew up in southern Idaho. We had irrigation, and we would like we would dig these little tunnels, and we would make the water go where we wanted it to. It was fun to watch. God does that with the king's heart. No big deal to him. 
We even see God hijack an enemy army. <laughs> it's just awesome. Yeah, I need 470 guys to protect Paul to get him to the next place. You know, just make it so. And, and, he, and Claudius Lysus is like, this is my idea. I have a great idea. And why? Because God wanted it to be that way. One of the things I found especially interesting about our passage today is that God is not mentioned. I started in verse 12 and through the end of the chapter. God is not mentioned anywhere in that. Doesn't mention the name of the Lord. Doesn't talk about him. And yet his fingerprints are everywhere in this passage. The evidence of who he is and what he's doing is unmistakable. And that's just a reminder to us that even when we can't see him, it doesn't mean he's not working. Even when we can't see his army, it doesn't mean we aren't winning. There are times when from our vantage point, it looks like God isn't in control. And that his plan isn't working out. And we're in the midst of a lot of weird stuff today that could lead you to that conclusion. And I want to tell you the truth. God is in control. God's purpose and plan will prevail. It's set. It will not, he will not be moved. He will not be conquered. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. I hope that just as Paul got encouragement from God at the right moment in, in verse 11, where Terry left off last week, that, that you're hearing that message today. Take courage, Christian. God has a plan. He's accomplishing that plan. He's using us to help accomplish that plan. And, and, this, and, and we don't have a reason to live in, in fear right now. Father, I thank you so much for um, even in the midst of weird things going on in the churches, we, we see your sovereign hand. We see um, your commitment to us. We see uh, the gospel going forth. We see people meeting Jesus and lives being transformed. And we just pray right now that um, rather than live in fear, we would be filled with faith. We would be filled with hope that we would trust your great name, that we would see that army, Lord, that's all around us on the hillside, and, and that we would just serve you with all we have right now. Lord, the time is short. We call ourselves followers of Christ. Lord, may we follow and may we do your will. May we tell others about you, we pray. And thank you, Father, so much for all the good things you've done for us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.